Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. Uh, and we're all about helping people become more um, financially literate is the way we look at it and uh, financially free. And uh, this guest that we have wrote a book called We Are All Fast Food Workers Now, The Global Uprising Against Poverty Wages. Annalise Orlek, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. First off, why did you write this book? Tell us a little bit about the genesis behind the creation uh, of this uh, book you put out. I believe 2021. Is that when you did it? 2018. Uh, 2018 was the first edition. Yes. Um, I was involved in my first book. I wrote among about about early 20th century garment workers and their organizing attempts. And one of the centerpieces of that book was the story of the 1911 Triangle Fire um, in which 146 young young workers died. And uh, I was involved in New York City in helping to organize the centennial commemorations in 2011. And at the commemoration, I met a Bangladeshi garment organizer by the name of Kalpona Actor, who uh, is organizing uh, the workers, most of whom are women, but not all, who make our clothing today. And when she made her speech that day, she said, in Bangladesh, it's not 2011, it's 1911. Um, and so I became really interested to find out, you know, what she meant by that. And so that really was the genesis for this project. And, you know, for this book, I traveled around the world uh, to find out uh, what kinds of conditions today's clothing uh, is made under. But I also interviewed people uh, back in the U.S. And um, the, the second moment of, of creation really came in, in 2015 when I I was interviewing uh, Fight for 15 activists in Tampa, Florida, people who were fighting for a living wage. Uh, at that point, they they wanted $15 an hour. It's not really a living wage anymore. But anyway, um, and at that gathering, I met uh, fast food workers, home health care workers, uh, graduate students and adjunct professors. And so I asked them, I said, you know, for an old labor historian, this is a kind of unusual working class alliance. And uh, it was uh, a historian like me, a graduate student activist who said, well, they tell us our advanced degrees make us special, but the truth, and if we're just good and quiet, we'll get those tenure track jobs and a real salary. Um, he said, but that's just a lie to keep us quiet and keep us docile because the truth is we're all fast food workers now. Um, and so I, I wanted to explore that reality. And, and I did looking at uh, garment workers, home health care workers, fast food workers, retail workers and and farm workers. Man, that's interesting. So you traveled around the world and interviewed people from all different backgrounds. Was there anything that really shocked you whenever you in, in, uh, met with them? Did you notice anybody from different parts of the world had uh, different financial IQ levels where um, maybe you saw it was a little bit different in uh, Europe than it was in the United States when it comes to consumption? Like I believe overconsumption is just an absolute crusher. So if you don't have financial literacy, most likely you make bad decisions, putting you in poor debt, no matter how much you're given. So what would you say? Well, yes. And that was... Uh... I mean, there are shocking conditions that I can describe that I saw in many places, including the United States, by the way. Um, but uh, but I wanted to comment on overconsumption, which you raised as an issue. The point of fast fashion, uh, when it was initiated, 
you know, 15, 20 years ago was to get people to overconsume. So uh, by the time this book came out in 2018, Americans were buying five times the amount of clothing that they bought in 1980, right? Because it's wow. kind of disposable clothing. Um, now, there is more consciousness in Europe, and I think European consumers, uh, through a bunch of organizations like Clean Clothes Campaign, uh, we're a little bit more in tune with the conditions under which this this new fast fashion um, was was being produced. Um, I think what was really interesting was the financial literacy and uh, the global understanding that I encountered in workers in uh, Cambodia and South Africa, um, in Mexico. So um, I, I think this global uprising against poverty wages is very much rooted in uh, a pretty sophisticated understanding on the part of even very disfranchised and underpaid workers about what global capitalism looks like these days. Do you bring up the fight for 15? Now, uh, there is the uh, if we go back to just talk about the minimum wage for a bit. I believe the minimum wage started in 1938 in the United States. Is that right? It has to some has something to do with Roosevelt and the fair label fair labor laws or something. That's where it began at 25 cents. Is that right? Are you familiar with this at all? I don't know how much it was, but um, the movement for living wage really started in the 1910s in states across the country. And you began to get a, a minimum wage originally uh, just for women workers, because the assumption was men could organize and they were paid more anyway. Um, 1938 and the Fair Labor Standards Act marked the beginning of a national minimum wage for all workers, male and female. Um, and uh, the idea that uh, there should be a floor below which no no worker can be allowed to fall. Now, um, you know, plenty of workers were allowed to fall below at the tip. The minimum wage was very, very different, and it's still almost a slave wage. In some places, it's two thirteen an hour today. Um, and so, um, you know, agricultural workers were often left out of the minimum wage. They have different labor laws than other workers. Domestic workers were left out. So it was the beginning in 1938, but it, it was by no means comprehensive. And you bring up a good point. $15 is technically not a uh, living wage, a, a healthy living wage. Uh, so the, the number 15, where did it come from? The, when I did a little bit of research, it really is just an arbitrary number that they came up with that said, you know what, what could we sell to the public? All right, we'll say 15 because that sounds like something we can market. There was no science behind it. There's no data. Let's sell 15. So what, I, what I'm getting at is that I've seen people make $100,000 a year actually have way less in the bank than someone who makes $50,000 a year. Now, that means that somebody who has 50000 is potentially better at saving. Maybe they don't overconsume. They don't do stupid things with their money. So they're able to do something that the person with $100,000 can't, and that is maybe have self-control. So in my opinion, it has nothing to do with the dollar value. It has to do with what is in your programmed, uh, in your brain and on how you act when you receive the money. So that's the way I look at it. Let's go back to the origin of $15. Why do you say that's not a living wage and where did that come from? Well, the the federal minimum wage had been stuck um, at 725 uh, since I think the last time it went up was uh, 2007, went into effect in 2009. And um, and the result of that is the decline in, in the existence of American middle class. So I, I think it's really important not to assume that 
people who are struggling from paycheck to paycheck. And there was a statistic that came out just a couple of days ago that said 64% of Americans are living from paycheck to paycheck. I think it's an illusion to say that all these people are suffering from bad spending habits or lack of financial literacy. You know, we know that rent has skyrocketed, um, even if you wanted to save and buy a house. You know, mortgage rates have skyrocketed. Go to the supermarket, there's sticker shock, even for, for someone like me who makes a good living. So, you know, a, a, a very large percentage of the American public and people around the world simply do not earn enough um, to pay their monthly bills. And, um, and if you're supporting a child on top of that, it becomes that much more complicated. And that's why, as far as people in poverty, uh, it has for a long time been uh, mothers and their children are in um, you know, the, the worst straights. So $15, um, the value of what you could purchase with a wage um, had been dropping for 40 years. And $15 was a doubling of the federal minimum wage. And it actually seemed almost delusional when they started, they started doing it. Um, and very quickly, they had a lot of success. Between 2012 and 2016, uh, American workers in the living wage movement um, increased their wages uh, 12 times faster than Congress did through a minimum wage. And they did it through local wage legislation. They did it through uh, strikes and organizing and pressuring their employers to raise wages. Um, and by the middle of the pandemic, $15 an hour became the, um, the de facto uh, medium wage for, um, for American workers. But because of inflation and everything else we've talked about, you know, it is it is no longer enough. It, I think it's you have to make between twenty one and twenty eight dollars an hour, depending on what part of the country you live to keep body and soul together. So if someone's making twenty one bucks an hour right now and the minimum wage, I believe, is seven twenty five. Is that what you said across the yes. country? Let's say you move it to 15 bucks or let's just say you move it to 20. What happens to those people who are making $20 an hour right now? Do you have to bump them up uh, accordingly? Exactly the same? Or do you just say, you know what? This is the threshold now. Everybody gets this. What happens? What do you recommend? I mean, I'm not I'm not an economic policymaker, but I think that wages need to keep up with um, productivity and also with the profit margins of people at the top. The last, during the pandemic, and certainly during the last 40 years with a series of tax cuts, money has been flowing upward, right? And so a very tiny percentage at the top of the economic hierarchy um, are making, you know, staggering, that is staggering increase in their wealth uh, and in their profits. So um, I would just suggest bringing uh, the people who produce that wealth along with those at the top who make their money through investment. And what decade do you think it really went uh, off track? In my personal opinion, I think it all began in 1971, 74, uh, is when they started to get crazy. Personally, I can trace it back to whenever Nixon took us off the gold standard. The moment that happens, they can print as much money as they want, which means when they print as much money as they want, it causes in severe, causes severe inflation, which makes the rich very rich, right? By increasing the assets that they own, the property values, now that's going to automatically boost whatever price they sell it for, causing more mortgage, causing more debt, also going to raise the rents accordingly with the prices of the property. So the moment you can print money at will, I think it destroyed everybody. So that's the way I'm able to kind of trace it back to the beginning of when things went insane. When do you think it went wrong? 
I mean, you know, we can talk about the the gold standard. Although, again, I'm not a, I'm not an um, economic analyst, but for me, I think uh, it really went wrong in in two different ways. One was um, uh, during the Reagan administration, the breaking of the air traffic controller strike and the decline of unions in this country. If you look at a chart, um, the decline of the middle class and the decline of unions in the United States goes hand in hand. It's almost exactly the same arc. Um, and so I, I think that's I think that's one thing. Um, and, you know, as a result, wages became stuck. Um, and I think uh, the second is, uh, you know, these tax cuts resulted in all kinds of government debt, which resulted in arguments for cutting uh, welfare programs for, you know, food aid programs and uh, and cash aid programs and medical care for poor families, uh, those kinds of supports, and even, you know, threatening to cut Social Security, those kinds of supports, um, if you were to go to economic analysis, you know, provide a lot more cash flow at the bottom. Um, and, you know, the more people who have some cash in their pockets, the more people who can spend it. You know, there's only so much money that can be spent um, at the very top. So I just think this policy, which uh, has really narrowed who can profit from uh, a booming American economy has has harmed things. And I would I would trace it back to you know, beginning in the 70s, but uh, I think in the 1980s. So when you were talking about tax rates, I believe it was in the 40s, maybe 50s. The tax rate was 94 um, percent. And when you do enough digging into it, are you familiar with um, the, the highest levels of tax um, taxation on people? I think it was 94 percent. and. Uh, when you did a little bit of research into it, people were not giving 94% of their, their income to the government. It was 94%, but then with a lot of tax breaks in there, right? Yes. So the average person was paying 16.9%, which means all you got to do is understand the IRS tax code. So when I look at the rich, these people hire professionals and they are playing by the rules for the most part, maybe not all. But for the most part, they have all these tax breaks in place. The average citizen out there has no idea that if you start a business and you do X, Y, and Z, you don't have to pay as much in taxes, which means keeps money in your pocket. Therefore, you can invest in certain other businesses to grow your income, revenue, net worth. It all begins, in my opinion, with financial literacy. School system is not teaching taxes for a reason. Where do you see the origin of these problems. Why are the rich being told one thing and then the poor are being told another? Go to school, get a job, buy a house, buy a car, and uh, don't start a business. Why, why are they told that whenever the rich are saying, hey, own a business, invest, understand the IRS tax code, play by the rules? Well, I don't think the rich play by the rules. I mean, if you look at um, some of the largest and most profitable corporations in the world, um, year after year, they pay nothing in taxes. So yes, they're hiring professionals to help them do that. They're offshoring uh, large parts of their businesses to places that are tax shelters, um, all of the kinds of things. I wouldn't call it playing by the rules. You know, as far as trying to start businesses, um, a very sizable percentage of those who do are actually working class and um, immigrants and female so there are a lot of small businesses in the country and, um, you know, and they're being started by, you know, people who don't have a, a ton of money to invest. Their situation is very difficult, obviously. Um, and, you know, I think there need to be more supports for small businesses. We don't. The tax code and, um, and you know, 
government supports for business always in the last you know 40 years have been aiming again toward the top and you know i think that's you know that is has been the policy of um you know both parties but particularly the republican party in the last in the last 40 years and you know again we need to we need to address that and i think people need to stop voting against their economic interests right there's a strong working class base um that is voting for people who are going to you know are going to cut taxes on the rich and you know reduce supports for them reduce medical care um and also fight unions and i think one of the interesting things in the last few years uh is that the american public has for the first time since the 1960s um become strongly majority in favor of workers unionizing and having some leverage you know vis-a-vis the people at the top that's new um and i and you know we're seeing the effects the the auto workers just want a historic raise you know the screen actors guild which as they reminded us in the strike does not include many people who make quote unquote tom cruise money but actually people who work you know day rates um they just want a historic victory the united parcel service workers just want a historic victory so um you know i think we're back to workers also um advocating for themselves that's separate from small business owners and i i strongly you know support not just a tax code but a legislative code that that benefits them so uh it sounds to me like you're against the republican party more so for the democrat democrat party is that right um yeah i mean certainly you know in terms of the policies we're talking about yes okay so just I mean, i'm not recent- i'm not a republican i never will be but um but I, I think we're talking about a very specific set of policies here so let's just look at for the average person, was their cost of living lower during the Trump years than the Biden years? And what we're able to see clearly, gas prices skyrocketed, food prices skyrocketed, interest rates skyrocketed, inflation skyrocketed with Biden as compared to Trump. And with Trump. I mean, all of this started, all of this started under Trump. The crazy gas prices started while Trump was still in. Trump had um, the lowest gas prices uh, in, I think, in 20 years. I believe it's yeah, and the gas said. prices are down. Gas prices are, are coming down again. Um, you know, as far as there was definitely inflation. All of this is under Biden. Um, part of a cycle. But in terms of, you know, access to health care, in terms of access, you know, to mortgages, none of this, you know, none of this is is as a result of, of Biden's policies. Binomics actually pulled the country out of a historic um, economic crisis in which, you know, which which COVID created. I think one of the problems is that um, that today's Republican Party demanded cuts in some of the enhanced government assistance um, that became possible under COVID. And, and one statistic that I hope people will think about is that child poverty was cut in half, right? Because the um, uh, earned income tax credit and the child tax credit um, and enhanced uh, government benefits for people with children uh, cut child poverty in half in a very, very short amount of time. So there were, you know, extremely positive benefits in the early, um, in the early Biden years. And, you know, Trump's economic policy was part of this, you know, and the Republican Party under Trump, you know, massive tax cuts to the wealthy, um, massive increase in, in, in national debt. Well, it, it, the average person making $50,000 probably has way less in their bank account simply because of gas prices alone, right? Or even food prices. So gas prices are tied to the pipeline that Bi- that Biden shut down. You can't really uh, drill for oil in the United States, which means you have to go overseas, which means now you're tied to Putin, right? So 
the average person is trying to go to work, trying to save money, trying to get by. They actually lost money under Biden. What would you say to somebody to continue to vote for Biden in the next election if they've lost money as compared to under Trump? What would you say? Well, first of all, pipelines um, are they're, they're a vestige of the past. Right. They, they don't recognize what's inevitably going to come in the future. Right. Which is, you know, many different kinds of vehicles that that aren't burning fossil fuels. The number of jobs that pipelines create, the economic, the environmental disaster that takes away jobs, the jobs they create. It's a very minimal amount. The the environmental disasters that take away jobs from people um, and and cost them incalculable sums. Um, we've already seen them. We we see them every day. So, you know, I would look at, for example, Biden's support for the return of unions, right? Auto workers, let's take a working class person making $50,000 building cars, right? They just got, um, I think, will be 25% over the next four years increase in their salary. You know, some of that is as a result of, you know, the supportive policies of the Biden administration towards unions. Some of it is as a result of, you know, unions organizing themselves. Party politics is not the only way that things happen in the United States. That's what this book was about, looking at the way workers change things for themselves here and around the world. So um, are you a, a Bernie Sanders fan at all? Hey, he's my senator. I live in Vermont. Okay, very nice. All right. So yeah. Bernie Sanders, I see him really pushing for the $15 minimum wage. Uh, you do five minutes of research, you realize that there are people on his staff that don't make 15 bucks. What do you say to people? They all do say, now. They all do now. They, well, they fought. Right. So but before he's out there, he's touting it. How can you have faith in a politician that's saying something but not doing it in his own company? What would you say to that? You know, we all keep we all hold Bernie's feet to the fire um, and, you know, and Bernie responds. And, you know, is he you know, is he 100 um, percent, you know, honorable all the time? Maybe not. But um, in my experiences of seeing him, and again, he's been my senator for a long time and was my congressperson before that. So I watch him. More, I've watched him more closely for more years than most Americans um, outside of Vermont anyway. Uh, you know, in my experience, in terms of politicians, he is uh, he believes what he says. He stays consistent. And um, and I think it's great that his staff um, and the staff of other Congress people organized and, you know, and began to change the standards of living and 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 wages in Washington, D.C. And again, you know, that has, you know, that it also in part has come from, you know, the Biden and Obama administrations, which raised the salaries of federal workers uh, to to a higher standard. So um, I like Bernie, you know, Bernie's a crotchety old uncle or grandpa, <laughs> but um you know, that's that's his personality. I'd, I'd rather have Bernie fighting for me than most other people in Washington. Do you trust in people who get into politics as a middle class, lower to middle class and then become millionaires? Do you believe in those people? You know, I think that's that goes along with the game. I think that's true of almost everybody in politics. Except for one. There is one that has a net worth that went down after becoming a politician. Do you know who that is? Are you going to tell me Trump? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, the yeah. reason why I bring that up is because at Thanksgiving, we were talking about this. And there's only one president in the past 100 years that got into politics and his net worth went down. Now, to me, I'm looking at that and say, you know what? I don't trust a politician left or right. Re Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. I don't trust anybody who gets in it and becomes a millionaire. Nancy Pelosi made $179,000 at her highest level as in, in a year. 
but she's worth $120 million. Now, in my opinion, and now this is the same with the other ones on the right too, but that's his one case. How could you trust someone who's saying, we're fighting for you, middle class, lower class, but I'm becoming a multimillionaire. Um, because they overnight. are fighting. They are fighting for us. It's about the policies they believe in. And, you know, Trump's net worth may have gone down basically because uh, he had to relinquish control of some of his companies and because his net worth was an illusion anyway. You know, he's channeling money, he's laundering money, you know, for, you know, overseas investors. That's been going on for 30 years. So he's hardly an example of, of someone who went into in, went into politics out of any kind of of, of principled reason. And, and he's a criminal and he's been acting as a criminal for 30 years. But, um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, is Nancy Pelosi's neighborhood, you know, very fancy? Absolutely. Is she fighting for policies I believe in? Absolutely. So I want somebody fiercely fighting for policies that are going to spread the wealth. And I don't actually care that much how much personal wealth they make, unless, as in the case of Trump and some others, um, it's made through palpably illegal means. But he made it in the private sector. So the way I look at that, I find that much more respectable than somebody who makes it in politics. That's the way I look at it. So I guess we'll disagree on that aspect, huh? <laughs> well, Nancy Pelosi's money comes from the private sector. She doesn't make it, you know, she's not she's not milking, you know, you know, all all these people milk their connections. And my God, the Trump family did extremely. Jared Kushner and his two billion dollars from, you know, from the Saudis is just a nice little amount. I mean, the Trump family played, you know, influence. They paid, they did paid to play throughout the time they were in DC. Let's, um, so. let's shift gears a little bit. Um, AI is coming into play. We have virtual assistants. We have the ability to do zoom calls, have team meetings left and right across the country. So being in a certain area is not as important as uh, today as it once was. Um, so I believe when you talk about minimum wage increase and causing maybe more regulation, individuals who have small businesses will say, you know what, I'm going to get smarter. I am going to buy a program instead of pay someone a minimum wage. What do you say to people out there? What's your defense on, all right, this technology is going to wipe out a lot of jobs. The more you push for a certain minimum wage, it's not going to wipe it out. The more you push for a certain minimum wage, it's going to wipe it out because people can, right? So it doesn't matter, um, you know, uh, what's his name, Andy Poster, I think Trump's first nominee for Secretary of Labor uh, used to say that. He, he also got caught for wage theft to the tune of $20 million from his own employees just in the state of California. And he said, oh, you know what, I'm just gonna replace everybody with, you know, machines and machines don't come in late and, you know, machines don't accuse people of sexual harassment. So I'm just gonna replace everybody. You know, the service sector has grown as a sector of uh, of labor in this country and around the world. And the service sector requires, for the most part, people to be there uh, in person. Automation is always a threat. Um, now AI um, was a very important factor in the Screen Actors Guild strike. Um, oh, yeah. And and they won an important victory um, that doesn't allow, uh, you know, doesn't allow employers to just, you know, film actors for one day for 200 bucks and then, you know, re reproduce their image, you know, infinitely into the future without paying them anything. You know, I think workers have to respond to the changes in technology and uh, these new strikes, both in terms of, of the green transition in autos and AI in Hollywood, uh, these new strikes have, have reckoned with some of those technological changes and, and won some big victories. Are you a Jim Rohn fan at all? Have you ever heard of any Jim Rohn books or speeches? No, I don't know who that is. 
So he's a motivational speaker and he's, he's passed now, but, um, he always talked about you are, your level of income is directly re- related to your level of self development. And, uh, if you can provide more value to the marketplace, you'll make more money in this book, rich dad, poor dad. Have you ever read that book at all yet? Mm-mm. Oh, great book. I recommend it. Talks about how, uh, you got to look at money, no matter what economies uh, around you, you can, you can really protect yourself financially. So invest in assets, right? Don't have your assets by your liabilities. And if you provide value to the marketplace, you can make money many different ways rather than just one income stream. So I'm totally against one income stream. I'm about creating many revenue streams. So I think that is one of the key solutions to individuals growing financially. Um, What do you say to someone like myself that says, you know what, no matter what, if you make one income, you'll never get out of the hole of uh of debt what'd you say you know i think that um that's the gig economy and it's seductive and uh you know i think there was a lot of rhetoric around it a few years ago and then people realized that the status of employee comes with certain protections not everybody wants that a lot of people want to put together you know a bunch of different ways of making a living which for example my daughter is doing but you know she has to do it because nobody's paying her enough to live Right. So she has to have three three income streams. And uh, does it make her free her freer? Does it um, give her access to benefits? Um, Does it give her access to a 401k and the ability to save for retirement? No. You know, those benefits still come along with the status of employee. Um, And, you know, the reason people need three income streams is because the status of employee um, has been manipulated and degraded by some of the wealthiest corporations in the world. Walmart, for example, would keep workers just below the number of hours per week, um, you know, at which they were required uh, to pay, you know, into benefit streams and to provide um, you know, to have overtime and all the all the federal protections. So um, I think we really need to go back to uh, a, a vision that's 100 years old. That's the New Deal vision. You know, you brought up the Fair Labor Standards Act. I think, you know, there was a, a basic belief, I think Franklin Roosevelt said it in the 1936 election, that, you know, if you're going to go into business, Right. Especially a big business. He wasn't talking about small businesses, but big businesses, as he said, have no business being in business unless, you know, they're going to pay their workers enough to live. And I I think we really need to have that discussion again as a society. So going forward, what is the solution? Do you outline one in your book? Do you believe it's more regulation, more government control, corporations doing their part, stepping up? Um, Personally, my opinion is, is uh, independence. Uh, I'm against corporations. You know, get away from the corporation, start your own business, create multiple revenue streams, take control of your life in every aspect. Don't rely on the government to be there to be your 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 knight in shining armor. So that's my philosophy. What's yours? Government aid is a two-edged sword, right? So for sure, the aid government gives it can take away, but not everybody's able to just you know just start a business. People try. Um, and, you know, the much maligned old welfare system uh, provided, you know, some some supports for uh, single moms, for example, who were interested in opening businesses. Um, and, you know, there were everything from beauty shops to restaurants to hair, you know, hair braiding businesses to child care. Um, all of those things um, are, are things that 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 poor moms have uh, have tried to start. But um, I, I think that the 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 state has to have a certain basic uh, issue of, of protection for all of its citizens. Otherwise, why have a government, right? I mean, you know, government has responsibilities and people have two different visions, right? There's a vision that government exists to protect wealth, 
And there are people who believe that government exists um, to protect its citizens. And, and I fall in the latter camp. Obviously, people need to take control. And as I said earlier, the Fight for 15 movement from 2012 to 2016 gave workers 12 times what Congress gave them when they raised the minimum wage. I think there needs to be both. So if are you a big fan of, I think there are many people out there, I think it was Yang that said uh, that, that said a, a stipend or $2,000 a month given from the government. Do you believe in that? So not just a living wage, but uh, an income directly from the government that takes care of everything. So $2,000 or, or whatever it is per month. So you have enough for food and, and shelter. Do you believe in that? Universal basic income is back. What's interesting to me, I mean, it had fallen off um, you know, the table and was no longer being discussed for a while. And now it's being discussed again. And I think one of the reasons for that is that a million studies have shown that if you give mothers in particular, um, and I would assume it's the same for fathers, if you give parents a basic amount to cover their children's needs in cash, it's the single most effective um, anti-poverty strategy. So I'm definitely open to, to discussions of universal basic income. That's one strategy. Um, again, support for labor unions is another strategy because it, it has been shown uh, to raise people's incomes. And we may see it in, in the auto industry. We may see that become a middle class industry again. We may see it in the professoriate. You know, I'm a dinosaur. Most three quarters of people who teach at colleges in this country don't earn enough to, you know, to keep body and soul together and have to be on food aid and medical aid for their kids. So, um, you know, I think that unions, a living wage, um, and, uh, you know, maybe universal basic income. We, we need we need to look at the situation we're in. And with 64 percent of, of Americans working paycheck to paycheck and worrying that they can't pay their bills, this is not a sustainable situation. My belief that if you give someone, let's just say two thousand dollars a month, but they end up spending four thousand dollars a month, you have done no good for them or for the world. So. They're going to go out and buy shoes or certain food or, you know, a lifestyle that they just do not afford. So uh, it's or they can't afford. And so other than taking on debt, which will just lead them to uh, other problems. So that's the way I look at it. Um, and then when it comes to uh, the uh, the solution of of taxes, let's go to that for real quick. Um, what is the right tax rate? What would you recommend? I don't have a, again, I'm not an economist, so I don't have a number. Um, I will just say that in the 60s, when the top marginal tax rate was 90%, uh, it was a booming economy. Now, it's not a, you know, it, it, it was a time of war, but we're in a time of war now. I mean, the U.S. has been involved in wars almost nonstop since the 90s. So um, it was a time of war and wars, you know, expand federal spending, which, which you know, which boosts the economy. So I am, you know, I believe in a high tax rate. I think people need to pay their fair share. Um, and I think that again and again, government spending, you know, whether it's on on social programs, on infrastructure, um, or even on, on defense, uh, injects money into the economy and, and, and boosts it. In your book, do you outline any strategies regarding how to save more money, how to become more valuable to the marketplace, how to boost your resume to make yourself more valuable? Therefore, you can obtain more funds. Do you have anything like that in there? It's the story of organizing, right? That's the message of this book is that people organizing will, um, you know, improve their conditions, their wages, 
and and their financial literacy, actually. Um, and uh, in the, the last chapter of the book, which is called Rays of Light, I'm looking at a number of different strategies that that um, that people are taking on today, including cooperatives, um, which have started to spread across the country, cooperative businesses um, and um, and cooperatives and consumer cooperatives as well. So that's one option that we haven't talked about at all, but that's a really interesting one. And that's um, becoming increasingly popular as people are struggling more to make it. One thing I want to run by you and see what you think about this. Um, I was able to see it firsthand. The problem with uh, limiting the rewards and incentives or maybe penalizing somebody for pursuing greatness. Uh, whenever I first started a business, I struggled financially like crazy. I was I was broke. Um, and since I was so poor, I could not afford health insurance. And if you're familiar with the individual mandate that Obama put in place, are you familiar with this at all? Basically, if you couldn't afford health insurance, um, you would be fined for not having it. So at the end of the year, I would get fined. And I remember talking to my accountant and he said, yeah, the way you get around this is that you can't have a business in your name. You have to give up this business and to say that you are going on welfare, which means you can't pursue this business if uh, if you if you don't want to be fined. All right. So in my opinion, I read that as you mean to tell me that if I want to make it out of this hole. I actually have to go through pain of being fined for not having health insurance. The easy button for the average person would have said, well, the hell with it. I could just give up my dreams and take welfare or get take not getting penalized. What do you say to people like that that says, uh, you know what? This government puts in place uh, a system that incentivizes welfare, more staying poor, staying at a lower class, rather than incentivizing greatness. There is, well, first of all, um, greatness takes different forms. And um, for me, uh, you know, the the single mom who is actually managing to raise and educate her kids on um, on a subpar income and do the best she can um, is is greater than, you know, Bezos or, you know, Elon Musk spending billions, sending his rockets up into the air. Um, I think, you know, greatness is measured differently. I think the individual mandate is premised on the very real um, notion that uh, when people don't have health insurance and something happens, uh, they end up costing uh, society a great deal more than, you know, than people who who are covered. I'm, you know, Obamacare is a compromise that, that, you know, is deeply flawed. Uh, I was I supported Medicare for all. I still support Medicare for all. Um, during the years when the National Health Service was healthy and functional in Britain, uh, it no longer is because it's been gutted and 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 COVID stretched it to the breaking point. But during the years when it was, it was you know it was one of the greatest achievements of British society, and it supported um, a strong economy. So we spend more on healthcare. Um, in this privatized system than almost any country in the world. Um, and our, we do not have um, the results to show for it. Our, our, our life expectancy is dropping. Um, and, uh, you know, there's any, we're sicker um, and, than we were before. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think my answer is, okay, yeah, uh, the Affordable Care Act is is needlessly complicated and cumbersome and has all, you know, pieces that, that maybe we don't want. It's way better than having, I think before this, it was over 37 million people without health insurance who were able to sign up. And um, 
But I would say, no, go for Medicare for all. By all accounts, it's cheaper, more efficient, um, and makes for a healthier society. Is the United States the greatest country in the world? <laughs> I don't know. That's not a... <laughs> when it comes to... You, you've interviewed many people. You're all over the world. Yes. When it comes to the economic status of its people, equality-wise, uh, equity-wise, all that, what is the greatest country, if not the United States? It's just a, it's a meaningless question. It really is to me. Because honestly, though, um, with 64% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck and unsure if they can pay their bills with more than 35 million people going to sleep food, you know, lacking enough food on any given day. We have work to do. So I don't care, you know, all this rhetoric about, you know, the greatest country in the world. I, I don't have a I don't have a pick. I have concerns about the work we need to do. Who's doing it the best then? Is there anybody that's doing it better than the United States? You know, I mean, there are countries that have more robust social safety nets. Um, and, give me, you know, give me one. Give me just an example. So I want to do I, I'm not, I, I really don't want to do that. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Good deal. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Um, outside of you, your own book, is there a book you recommend to our listeners that could get someone to uh, maybe open up to what you're saying? I don't know. I'd love it if they would read my book. I, it's it's a lot of stories um, written, you know, in a very digestible fashion in short chapters. Um, and I think that would give them, you know, a clearer sense of um, of what we're talking about. Um, there's some other, you know, really good pieces. Sarah Jaffe's, you know, Your Work Won't Love You Back is an interesting story about all of the, the people who do uh, service kinds of jobs, for example, like childcare that they do because they love the work, but they can't afford to live. Um, and you know, and what strains that puts on them. So, um, I think there's, you know, there, there's quite a bit out there and, um, I, I hope people will, will try to get a sense, but you know what I think because living wage has proven to be a nonpartisan issue among voters, not among legislators, but among voters, I think people understand what this is about because people are struggling. And I think, you know, unfortunately, here and around the world, people have fallen victim to the rhetoric of power hungry politicians who try to make them hate other people and divide the country, you know, against itself, all countries against themselves, because hate is easier to understand. It feels good. Um, that's what has me worried. I think. You know, I think at, at, at root, people understand they're not earning enough. At root, people understand that unions are good things. Um, and and I, I hope that that's my deepest and fondest uh, wish, that people will resist the rhetoric of hatred um, and start thinking in, in uh, a more collective way, because it's going to take all of us to get out of the hole we're in now. And it isn't about Joe Biden. Um, it's about, you know, half a century of policies that, um, have harmed workers and harmed low-income Americans, benefited the super wealthy. Um, and what's dangerous about um, about Trump and certain people in today's Republican Party is um, that appeal to hatred. And it's it's going to harm it's going to harm us all. And I really, really hope we can move away from it. Every time that they say they're printing more money, I just think, man, the lower middle class just got a little bit more poor just in one second. And I notice a lot of my clients are multimillionaires, they're investors, they're real estate developers, all that. They were all Trumpers and they are still all Trumpers. 
but they're making way more money under Biden, which is just fascinating. So I believe in order to make more money, become more valuable to the marketplace. That's my philosophy. But I will say this has been absolutely interesting. I love talking to you guys. The book is called We Are All Fast Food Workers Now. The Global Uprising Against Poverty Wars. Annalise Orlek, I really appreciate you being here. Is there any way to get in touch with you? Is there a website, anything you recommend? Um, I can be reached. Uh, I should have a website, but I don't. But I can be reached at annalise.orlek at Gmail. So, um, you know, open up and I'll I'll answer realistic and, and sincere questions. It's been an honor. So thank you so thank much you. for being here, guys, uh, and listening in. And uh, remember, a million-dollar book will, list, will, will lead to a million-dollar life.